Hello and welcome to the Bond Revisited podcast with me, Tom. And me, Joe. The podcast where we rewatch the Bond films one by one, discuss them, and then rank them alongside the other Bond films to build our own definitive list for the Bond franchise. You are listening to episode 10, where we'll be revisiting the film The Spy Who Loved Me. Now, most people would consider this the best Roger Moore film and one of the best films in the franchise, quite frankly. Yeah. It's uh, from what up I there. recall, you wouldn't rank it as the best Roger Moore film, or at least going into this. Uh, why is that? I thought you put Moonraker ahead of this in your initial rankings. Did I? I don't. <laughs> Do I need to go I th- check? I thought you did. <laughs> I think I. I think I put this and then Moonraker underneath it. Oh, okay. Because because they ultimately they're quite similar films, but um, I do think this one has the edge. Okay, okay. We'll we'll check the footage on that one. Yeah, now you're making you me out. wonder. But I, yeah, I'm pretty. Sure, I don't see how I wouldn't have put this above Moonraker. Okay, cool. But uh, yeah, so I guess your expectation going into this one was number one on your list or bust. Yeah. Well, well, maybe not. Definitely. I mean, the track record of the Roger Moore film so far, not great. Surprisingly, mm. you know, I put Live and Let Die at the bottom of my list, and and uh, the Man with the Golden Gun still. I think I put it fourth. Like it's, I'm still having the top three as Sean Connery. Uh, so I, I, uh, it's overdue now to have a bit of more up at the top. <laughs> Long overdue for more. Long on top. overdue. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Fair enough. So my expectation of this film is a little bit strange because I feel like I don't have like a strong personal connection to this film. Like I think a lot of people do. Um, like I think people watch this when they're younger, and what because it's one of that like ultimate Bond films, and it has it all and ticks all the boxes. People kind of get sucked into it. I never quite felt that way. I felt that way more with like Goldeneye, which I've already talked about, and a few other films, but never quite this one. So I have high expectations. You know, I expected this to be good, and I expected this to be ranked quite highly. But to me, it was like. It could be number one, but it could be number two. It could be number three. I don't know. Like, it's definitely top half, but I was kind of looking to see, like, did I miss something? And am I going to establish that personal connection with this film like so many other people have? Which I won't say if I did or not, but I will say I don't know where I'm going to put it at this moment. I have not decided yet. I was going to say that's a dangerous place to start off with where there's there's the expectation for it, but... You don't have, like you say, that connection, which I think I I do, and I think that's why for me this isn't this is a bit of a no brainer this this review, um, but yeah, I, I I do I do wonder now because if if you don't have that, there is a lot of emphasis on this being one of the best bonds, and I don't know if that's strictly true, but yeah, this rewatch. Um, definitely made me realize some new bits for this film some bits that are better than i remember but also some bits that are worse than i remember hmm well yeah i think that's fair to say right i don't think any of these reviews were going to be saying it's brilliant throughout and there's never any issues when you watch them back to back it kind of makes it easier to pick up on the issues but even so it's the spy who loved me right there's some so big iconic moments that I don't think this is going to be another Goldfinger episode. I think I can say quite confidently it's not going to go that route. Hmm. Well, shall we just get into it? I mean, I guess there's a lot of history with this film, but I think we'll pick up on that as we go, because it is quite an interesting case. Is it? Well, kind of, <laughs> yeah. 
Okay, it's a yeah, new let's... era of Bond, Joe. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of people just tend to forget the first two more and we just get straight on into this one. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So we start off with the circles again. And interestingly, the theme plays the Bond film, but it's like starting at a different point in the track. Oh, okay. So you don't get the like the normal like or maybe it is a remix but i'm pretty sure it was starting at a different place because the song sounded different but it was definitely still the bond theme so i think they've just switched that up again they switched up quite a lot for this this uh gun barrel sequence because we've got a new recording as well new footage of roger moore doing the walk um which which i was pleased to see given how you know we've commented that the first one was a great (laughs) um so they they went back and actually made it so the gun fires at the right time now, which is always a good sign. Um, actually facing the camera rather than just off to the side. And he's also wearing these lovely flared trousers. This is the one thing I couldn't take my eyes off when it's just like such big flares. <laughs> it was that time. It was the yeah. 70s. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it was an okay. It, it, I think better than the last one, him walking across. But I wasn't so convinced by the walk but it was obviously a lot better turn and shoot. It was a very slow turn and shoot. Yeah, I think he, he he didn't have the confidence, did he? He just wanted to, right, let's just turn and not do anything weird and shoot. There you go. I mean, if, if we're thinking about this, the, the, the assassin that is looking at Bond in this scenario definitely had time to pull the trigger before Bond turned. But that's all right. <laughs> we'll forgive we'll forgive Roger Moore. Maybe he just had a bit of a bad, bad back that day or something. Yeah. I guess to be fair, like any assassin would... If he saw James Bond just walking slowly across, always had plenty of time. <laughs> That's true. Yeah, episode 10, we're getting into the real stuff now, the real details. Took us long enough. Yeah. So this all fades into a sub that's under the water, and we go into the sub and see all these British Navy men and sailors. Is it a sailor if you're on a sub, or do you have to be on a boat to be a sailor? I think they're still sailors. I think so, I, right? I have no clue, to be honest. Uh, we'll get we'll look into that one um so a lot of sub sailors uh on this and it's a british submarine and we see all these people kind of in the cafeteria and basically looking very bored like two of them are playing chess but are very bored playing chess um and while this is happening the tea starts shaking not the tea <laughs> their cup of tea starts shaking <laughs> it's uh... It's uh, and it's not very nice tea. I don't know how you have your tea, but to me, that was like that's just a lot of milk for a cup of tea. It did look, yeah, I, I, it did look a bit too milky for my liking. Yeah, like I don't know what sailor life is like if they need their calcium or something, but that looked a bit too much to me. <laughs> uh, so the tea shaking is not Godzilla attacking. Instead, it's just an alarm is going off and all the light starts flashing and. Or the cap. Actually, when did the original Godzilla film come out with the the shaking cup? Oh, what the original one? Well, whatever did it first. I'm just thinking. Did the spy who loved me do it first? Was it Godzilla? I thought it was Jurassic Park that did the water. Oh, I don't know. <laughs> I always thought it was Godzilla because I thought the parodies were always someone shouting Godzilla when they see their thing shaking. Oh, I, I mean, I, I'm sure it's quite a common trope. I I don't know though, to be honest. We'll give credit to Roger. Give him a point. Yeah, why not? Uh, So points to Roger. So yeah, so everything's freaking out, basically. And the captain gets on the radio and everything is failing. They have no power. So the captain orders to resurface up to the top. And the man then checks the scope 
or whatever you would call it to kind of see what's up there while they're on the surface and does a very loud and obvious gulp and then just says, oh my God. <laughs> and before we figure out what's going on, we cut away to like some sort of officer on a red phone explaining to someone, hey, we've lost a nuclear sub. So that was a nuclear sub we just saw and something has happened to it, but we don't know what has happened to it so far. I, I get that that moment's meant to be dramatic, but I, I just found it funny. I don't know what. I think it was just the delivery and, and just like the dramatic pause and the, oh my God. <laughs> just, <laughs> I really liked that. It was proper. It was really cheesy. I don't think you can say, oh my God, and have it actually really work as a dramatic line anymore. It's just been sucked away too much. Mm, like the slow so. take off the sunglasses and be like, oh my God, it's crazy. You just can't do it. It's been done. But I mean, to be fair, like, it's quite a nice teaser because we, we as the audience don't see what he is, is reacting to. So what, what happened? What is happening to the sub? It's a, you know, it's a nice hook anyway. Mm. And then this cuts to Moscow. And we actually see Moscow text on screen. Thank again. God. Which is like <laughs> the only time in this whole film they do that. It's something we saw in uh, Live and Let Die. But they've done it this time again, but only once. Oh, yeah. That's right. It would have been useful at other points in the film as well, come to think of it. Yeah, it feels a little bit of a rushed editing job being like, we didn't get any cool shots of the Kremlin. So just put Moscow on there. That'll do it. That'll be fine. Hmm. Uh, and yeah, we see this man in glasses sitting at this desk, uh, another someone who looks very official, and he's on the red phone. And I think they say how he's lost a nuclear sub as well, right? Yeah, like the P- Pachemkin or something like that. Mm. So basically, yeah, we saw the English officer saying we've lost a nuclear sub, and now we're seeing a Russian kind of equivalent of that also saying we're on the red, uh, we're also uh, lost a nuclear sub. And then the Russian man says, I'll assign my best agent on the case. And that's Agent Triple X. That's the name called. Yeah, <laughs> great yeah. name. And we then cut to somebody in bed. And it's someone who looks like a James Bond type, but very clearly isn't James Bond. Too hairy. <laughs> Too hairy for Roger Moore anyway. <laughs> yeah. Oh, not enough hair for Sean. He's kind yeah. of <laughs> in the <laughs> middle there. <laughs> Um, goldilocks <laughs> yeah <laughs> uh yeah so this guy's in bed with a beautiful woman the woman's saying hey stay in bed and and we see the the call coming in for agent triple x and the woman goes over and picks up the phone and says i'm agent triple x <gasps> not what? the man what yeah the old switcheroo <laughs> they got us uh, I, I kind of like this bit. I like how they found someone who just fits that James Bond. Like, he looks most like George Lazenby. Yeah, I thought that. Yeah. Like, I like that they found somebody like that. And kind of like the oh my god thing, right? It's silly and stuff, but like, that's kind of cool. That's a nice little twist. Yeah. And it's it's a it's a nice, it's a, it's a good way of doing that without kind of, well, it's a more interesting way of revealing that rather than just, you know, bringing Triple uh, X in. Hmm. Well, it's quick as well, yeah, which is nice, yeah. right? Like it's it's giving us it's a play on something we've already seen, and they kind of quickly get this information out of the way because this is quite a long film. Um, so it's nice, especially with the opening sequence. You don't want to spend on these sort of moments too long, so it's just a nice little reveal. Pretty woman is the agent, but and let's let's kind of move <laughs> on. Yeah, 
And then we're going to cut again. Another cut. Uh, This time it's M on the phone to the Prime Minister, who also says he's going to put his best man on it, which is more parallels coming in, where the the Russian guy assigned their best agent for this, Agent Triple X, the woman who was in bed. And now M is on the phone saying, I'm going to put my best man on it. And he goes to Money Penny because he's in the office and say, where is 007? Uh, Tell him to pull out immediately. Which we then cut to Bond kissing a naked woman on on some furs in this cabin on this mountain. Yeah, (laughs) it's just just like it's such a such a setup for that. I mean, I I know I shouldn't I shouldn't be surprised, but it's just like such a ham fisted gag that one in particular. Yeah, I don't really dislike these, but I think when you watch these Bond films back to back to back to back to back, like we're doing they really stand out more like because all of these films have them in and especially this Roger Moore era has been all in on these sort of puns and cutaways and stuff so individually I don't really mind it doesn't make me groan but when you have when it's so concentrated you're just like okay guys we get it (laughs) (laughs) Bond has the intercourse (laughs) we know that you can write some good double entendres yes well done (laughs) yeah it's I mean I like when it's M to be honest because of who M is and the way Bernard Lee plays him, like the fact that he's so serious and that more gruff kind of guy, it 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 works well. It's just we've seen it quite a lot at this point. Yeah. Uh, so we find out that Bond is in Aust- Austria, I believe, uh, and as he's kissing this woman on the floor, his watch starts printing a message, which I think is another different watch. I don't think it's like from any of the other films. I didn't see what the brand was, but it wasn't the same as the other ones, I don't think. I have a feeling that they probably changed, because you know, like Bond now, it's always an Omega, right? Um, hmm. I think back then they had different they had different uh, sponsors, I guess. I don't know whether it was like a completely different maker of watch, but yeah, they, they do change more often. In these well, if films. you watch the credits of this, uh, I'm jumping ahead, but you'll see a load of basically brands listed in it. So I don't know if this is the first one that went really heavy in terms of that crossover. It's something we saw later, like with the Daniel Craig films, like we definitely had it. Um, And I know we've had it in the past, but this one, yeah, like there were definitely brand deals going on with like Sony and stuff like that. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's very obvious later. So this was probably a brand deal. But yeah, his watch is printing a little message and it just says uh, report in to HQ, basically 007 which means that Bond is gets into his ski gear and heads off. The ugliest ski gear <laughs> you could imagine. What are you talking about? It's like, well, now, now listen here, 007, we've got you this, this uh, covert disguise. This <laughs> <laughs> is this bright yellow jumpsuit. Now, 007, oh. you know how snow is white and how you want to blend in? <laughs> well, we've got you a yellow and red suit. <laughs> Because we it's don't so, like you very much. <laughs> it's so <laughs> ugly. I mean, what this leads into as a, as, a, as a stunt scene is good, but it's like you could have made Bond look a little bit cooler. It's like a big banana skiing down. Oh, I mean, it's it's purely the practical reason, isn't it? Like, it's purely they wanted him to really stand out as James Bond on the on the slopes. But we've had it on Her Majesty's Secret Service where they did the bright blue, and that worked really well. And honestly, Mm. I would have been up for him in blue again. Yeah. Instead, they decided to go for a bright yellow and red combo. Yeah, not the best. 
so yeah, Bond gets dressed and, and leaves, and uh, I think the, the woman who he was kissing is sort of like, oh, I need you, James. And you get, so does England. Nice. Line, yeah. <laughs> uh, and, like yeah, and off he line. goes. Yeah, off he goes out the door. And as he's skiing away, um, you get the sort of scene of the woman still in the cabin who goes to the, some sort of walkie-talkie phone and, and, oh, no, she was it was a trap, and she's evil because she says uh, he has just left um, to someone. And you realise that there's some uh, there's some bad guys waiting outside um, for to chase Bond. I think they're I mean they're they're Russians, right? I don't think it's ever no, yeah, stated. they have to be Russians because it they ties into be. the agent triple X yeah. plot later. Yeah, just just some some nasty Russians after Bond. Uh, I guess it's wrapped into whatever this mission Bond was doing at the time. It's kind of one of those things where you you get a peek into what Bond was up to, like midway through something or coming to the end of a previous mission. Uh, but yeah, this turns into um, a ski chase, uh, another one. We do get a lot of ski chases in this this era of Bond. I feel like, um, and it's it's quite a it's quite a short one actually. And I quite like how short. And I mean, we are still in the pre-title sequence, right? So it's not going to last for ages. And it's um, it's just Bond doing a little bit of front flips and back flips and all this sort of stuff, uh, evading these like three or four bad guys chasing after him. Uh, one thing to note, though, is that one of the the baddies is the guy that we saw in bed with Triple X, and they, they kind of. I feel like they could have made this a bit clearer. I mean, they do they do focus on his face for a couple of shots, but it's not immediately obvious. At least to, to me, it wasn't. Or if you didn't know, um, no, I only guy. thought some. I only put it together later because you know normally with these bond chases, you have a lot of people dying, the henchmen and stuff going off cliffs or whatever so yeah. it was odd that they picked one of them that i think bond shoots with a rocket ski or something yeah uh it was odd that they zoomed in on him like that but i didn't put it together it was the same guy as in the bed i just put it together later being like oh so that's why they focused on him in the moment not very clear mm, they needed to have given him some sort of facial scar or something that would have done it you know something <laughs> a bit more noticeable make him knickknack have knickknack yeah <laughs> Yeah. Give him just everything combined. Give him like the the eye scar from Blofeld and and metal teeth, and then you will really know who it was. Uh, but yeah, he gets shot, as you say, by by Bond using this kind of what are they called ski sticks. I don't know what they are. What you use to ski with, and it turns into a little kind of harpoon gun thing, which is kind of a nifty little gadget. Um, and again, it kind of the film really points out this guy, kind of a little close up of him as he as he's there, his dead body. Uh, and eventually Bond does get away. He he skis up towards the end, uh, the edge of a cliff. And I should kind of point out that all meanwhile throughout this, you're getting a really you're getting what ends up being quite a uh, commonly used theme in this film. Which I think it's is it called Bond seventy seven? Um, this particular track where it's like a sort of groovy disco Bond theme. Um, which is really, it's a, it's a good theme. I would argue it's a bit overplayed in this film, ultimately. Mm. But uh, it's kind of got this really great ending where it's sort of dramatic notes. And just as Bond is about to jump off the, uh, the edge of a cliff, um, just like the music suddenly stops. And you just get this pure silence, pretty much, apart from sort of the sound effect of the wind as as Bond is there falling off of this gigantic cliff. Which, of course, was a stunt done in real life. Some guy actually did this, which is just mad. Um, and you think, oh no, what's going to happen? He's falling. And then right you know, right near the end, the parachute opens. There it is, a Union Jack. The Bond theme kicks in. And that's it. That's the end of the, end of the pre-title sequence. 
Ah, oh, it's a great. This, this that was mean, a good one, wasn't it? There's, there's really. I mean, this is like up there. This is what people talk about when they say like you know pre-title sequence stunts. I just think this was really. It's just it was just done almost to perfection. I'd say you know the music and then the, the stopping the music and just having. Oh, it was so good. I think for me, this combines everything I kind of wanted in a sequence that I kind of saw elements of throughout these films, but they never got put together in this way where we get a ton of plot set up, but it's very quick and to the point and you get the the sub scenes and stuff and things that tie into the actual film to kind of get out the way and, and we actually see Bond on a mission, but that mission, it actually is connected to what happens in the rest of the film, so it doesn't quite feel so pointless. But at the same time, it stands on its own as like a cool action set piece of him being chased and then jumping off the cliff, as you say. And that cliff jump is really impressive. Like the fact that they cut out the audio and it feels like he falls for ages in the air yeah. and they're just zooming on and this little man in this yellow suit just spiring in the air. It's it's quite daunting. So when it does kick in the Bond theme and the parachute, it's like a, a slight relief at the same time like and it makes it really satisfying so it's like yeah i this is just kind of the perfect bond intro i don't know if this is ever going to get topped but it just has everything i want to see just bond being cool and story set up and kind of something's going on some mystery but you don't get too much and things are tied to the rest of the film it's like yeah it's great really really good yeah that's exactly i just put it it was pretty much perfect i think that having that one and it is kind of one continuous shot for the most part uh, of of this ski jump and uh they 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 clearly knew what they had there like, like, they knew like this is this is a good this is a good shot <laughs> let's just leave it let's let it do all the talking and uh it really really works and oh, then, definitely. Uh, yeah that leads into the the title sequence of the film which isn't as good <laughs> personally <laughs> i don't think um you get uh well i'll get onto the song in a moment but in terms of like the visuals of the pre-title sequence it's um it's a, it's again quite a, a simple one for me. I think it's a lot of uh, obviously you get the silhouetted women and you get um, you get lots of kind of women dancing on guns and spinning around guns and and red and blueness in it. Um, and interestingly, I think this might be the first time you actually get Bond properly in it, like actual shots of the actor who's playing Bond in it. Um, like you get Roger Moore, but to me, nothing really stood out in this pre-title sequence. Uh, sorry this title sequence no same here it's just a bit forgettable like the most notable thing is that you see a lot of roger moore here Mm. running around and the silhouettes aren't quite as dark as they normally are which means sometimes you just see topless women yeah and it's not hidden at all yeah quite blatant yeah it's it's kind of odd because normally you know you know that's what's happening with the other ones but these ones they just don't dark it out as much as okay well that's all right, I guess they're just trying to push the limit at this point. Um, but this is like alongside the theme is supposed to be kind of more of a romantic women and bond sort of thing with kind of guns thrown in. And it's a bit, yeah, it's a bit whatever, right? I'd like, this is just not one where anything really kind of stands out. It's just ticking the box of like, yep, here's the silhouette, here's the guns, here's James Bond. That's your title sequence. Yeah, I feel like they they, they were... There are parts where they're trying to do something with the whole British and Russian teaming up, which we eventually get in this film. You know, The Spy Who Loved Me is the premise of that. And you get that in some shots where, like, Bond pushes over 
this row of like marching women. Yeah. Very strange. But it's yeah, they didn't really go very far with that, so that was a bit of a shame. But um, but I mean the song, I love the song. I mean the song is a classic as well by Carly Simon, um, and it's kind of the the first in this batch of of Bond films we get where it's kind of a ballady song. You know, we've had Limitless Die and and um, the Man with the Golden Gun that were both quite rocky songs, and but the next three films at least we're going to have actually four films, I suppose. We're going to have uh, kind of a bit more slower and a bit more ballady songs, and I think um, at least for this first one, it's it's a great it's a great Bond track. I do like this one. Yeah, it's not one I would ever really listen to, but I do like the kind of more romantic ballads of Bond, and I think this is one of the better ones. And I think I said you only live twice. I kind of think of this song whenever I try to think of the theme for you only live twice, and I think it's just because it's a more striking kind of memorable song. Mm. Um, the kind of riffs in it like it doesn't really have as that strong of a riff from that side of things you know like live and let die has that iconic riff this doesn't really have that but it's it's just a really strong vocal performance and nobody does it better is a really great line and a really good name for a bond song so yeah it's it's not one of my favorites but i do like these romantic kind of versions and i think this is one of the better ones i agree and we get to the end and we see the director is Lewis Gilbert, who, if those who remember, was originally the director or was the director for You Only Live Twice, who then didn't do any more Bond films until now. Mm-hmm. And that somewhat reflects what this film is kind of going for, where it's quite interesting, actually, because I was looking up budgets of James Bond films. It was a particularly crazy Saturday night for me. Um, <laughs> and... What happened is that we know the budgets went up to fundable, which was $9.5 million, I believe. But You Only Live Twice had the exact same budget as that film, so it was a massive big one. And it shows with the volcano base, right? Yeah. Um, so with Lewis Gilbert coming back, this kind of represents what they did with The Spy Who Loved Me, where the last few, like the last four films have been, I think, $7 million. So none of them have cost as much as You Only Live Twice are fundable. But The Spy Who Loved Me, they've shot the budget up to 13.5. So this is the most expensive film they've ever made at this point. And they brought back Lewis Gilbert to direct, who also directed You Only Live Twice, one of the biggest Bond films that they made. So it kind of reflects how this film is all about kind of recreating You Only Live Twice a little bit and just trying to be a big budget in your face Bond film, as opposed to the last two films, which were the more smaller budgets kind of affairs yeah I, I think i read that the at least for the film before this the the man with the golden gun it didn't do as well in the box office so i'm, I'm guessing they their thoughts was you know we've we've got to spend some money to make money now like we've got to get back to that sort of thing with you only live twice and thunderball so amp up the budget and maybe lewis gilbert just knows how to spend money <laughs> he's just very good at spending mm. money yeah but it's one of those things that it's quite interesting because we talked about diamonds are forever how that was bringing back a formula that had worked really well for them before. Yeah. And it seems like they're doing it again. Only this time it was definitely a lot more successful because this is a very iconic and more successful Bond film. But this is them bringing together the You Only Live Twice formula and arguably the fundable one as well and doing that for the latest film. Um, they kind of didn't learn their lesson with Diamonds Are Forever, but this time it paid off, which is nice. Yeah. Yeah. And it's not the first time they'll do this as well. I think... It's kind of one of those things in the Bond franchise where they'll they'll 
have these like a run of good films and then a couple will falter and then they'll have to fall back a bit on what they know and then it the cycle just repeats over and over again yeah it's just interesting because i know the more modern examples of it but it's interesting to see them do it here and how sometimes it really pays off and then sometimes it doesn't really pay off it's it's Mm. interesting that they can do the same approach and have it work sometimes but not other times yeah so this all leads to that russian man that we saw before the one with the glasses who ordered uh agent triple x around so i always put him as russian man with red phone because wherever (laughs) he is he has this really bright red phone like something from deal or no deal next to him (laughs) Oh my god! <laughs> you have the most interesting note-taking names. I, I'd love to see your notes sometimes. Like, surely it would be easier just to put Go- Gogol, right? I didn't pick up on the name. I just missed these names when they're not English names. I'll be honest. <laughs> Gogol is well, the now- first time I'm hearing that. I oh, okay, fair enough, fair enough. And now I want to see him in Deal or No Deal. <laughs> Who's the banker then? I wonder. Oh, <laughs> maybe he is the banker. That would make sense. Yeah. There we go. Uh, so the banker brings Agent Triple X in, and she's in her full Soviet gear. Do we hear her name at this point, or is that later? I think we do. I think we do. And uh, what, Hang on, what is her name? Amasova. Anya. Anya Amasova, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so we call her Anya from, from now on. Uh, all my notes do say Triple X, because it was easier to type, but uh, yeah, Anya is, is what she's called, and... This is a very Soviet-looking place. I saw a picture of Lenin in the background. I'm like, wow, they're really hamming up this Russia thing. Um, but he basically briefs her, saying, a nuclear sub is gone. We have a lead for where it might be in Cairo, in Egypt. And then he brings up the fact that her, the man, the not George Lazenby man, has been killed on the mission. And, like, you're probably quite sad about it. But she says, I'm fine, I'm going to carry on. I'm I'm paraphrasing here. Uh, this is quite a short scene. But yeah, he's aware that she might be upset because of the man got killed, who we mm. know was the man that Bond killed. Although I was quite confused by this scene because I assumed that she knew James Bond was the one that killed the guy. But of course, the guy doesn't say James Bond killed him. He just says a British agent or something like that. Yeah, um, but I found it quite odd that she didn't piece together the fact that it was Bond at this point because that just seems like a very logical assumption, especially seeming what we've just seen in the film. You'd think so, wouldn't you? Yeah. I, one thing I will say about this scene is it it makes uh it makes the KGB seem like a quite a nice place to work. <laughs> like. I'd, <laughs> I don't know they seem they seem very uh, like considering about this about how you know like oh we we it's not gone unnoticed that you and this man were more than just friends it's like oh you know how nice of the of the comrade general to point this out and think about her like that. Well, I'm sure Anya filled same. in the official forms, the relationship forms in the workplace. Oh, I'd hope so. Got it all Come cleared on, and above board. Yeah, yeah, you got to follow orders now. Come on. You don't think M brought Bond in and saying, yeah, sorry, your wife's dead. <laughs> Are you okay? Yeah, hey, I can't see that happening. Yeah, they didn't put that scene in Diamonds Are Forever, oddly. <laughs> uh, so then we cut to Bond in a helicopter, the whole... Like, this whole transition is all about them talking about... Because she's all like, I would very much like to meet the man that killed my other half or boyfriend or whatever you want to call him. 
And that cuts to Bond in a helicopter kind of pulling the two together. Again, it's odd that she doesn't figure it out considering how the film is so heavily shoving it in your face. But never mind. Um, And Bond lands on a ship cruiser and he's in his full naval gear, which is always a pleasure to see. Yeah, I do think, I mean, we've seen this a couple of times before, but I, I do think Roger Moore pulls it off best, this outfit. This looks great. Is this... Yeah, because we've only had three Roger Moore films, and I think this is the second one where he goes all Navy commander gear. Yeah. Which I'm I'm here for it. Like, that's great. Mm. Uh, and he straight away gets greeted by Q, because Q is there. Remember when Q used to stay indoors? And, like Q, Q goes traveling more than Bond now, I feel like. <laughs> yeah, he's not far behind. Because you have to imagine, you know, there are other double O agents. Q's probably getting flown around everywhere to go give them their gadgets now busy man yeah he must be yeah that's a good point actually what about 003 like what's what's going on with him Mm. he probably just fedex is that one and so i gotta go and see bond on the ship (laughs) uh so i got a little bit lost about who everyone was in this scene of god yeah yeah so bond's on this ship and he's basically kind of being briefed about what's going on with the nuclear sub and things like that and but there's a load of like official men. One of them's like a minister or something like that, and gives Bond a tube for some reason. I I got really lost on this. It's just lots of it's lots of old men just going like whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> basically. <Yeah. laughs> this whole scene. That's how you can basically summarize the scene. <laughs> yeah. I, do you know any of the details here? <laughs> so. Uh, as far as I know, yeah. So Bond is there with, I think, the Minister of Defence. Because I recognise he, he comes back, that guy, in the, in a later Bond films. Um, I definitely recognise that character. Um, Minister of Defence. And there's another guy who I think is in the next M after the current M. So I guess this is sort of like what he did before he became M, which is kind of cool. He's like the adm- Admiral in this scene. Um, and they're there to tell Bond, yeah, as you say, about, about the Saab and... Uh, the captain, or some sort of captain, is there as well of uh, of a submarine, and they basically bring out this big machine in a really overly complex way. Like it has to, the doors slide open, and it has to like come forward from the wall, and on it shows the uh, the path of the the sub that was that's gone missing. The like it's not a flight path. What would you? It's not a plane. What do you call it? Uh, like the, the scuba. Ship. the 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 ship path of the submarine uh, on a map and yeah this tube that that bond has he it's got a tracing which he overlays on top and it's hey look at that it's the exact same line so clearly details or 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 someone is finding out information about their subs and and their tracking systems and being able to compromise their positions basically is what is being revealed in this scene um and obviously that's a big kind of defense worry for everyone in this room that's when they all go no that can't be possible blah blah blah. and and i love i love when like they kind of set up q to to be this character that just sort of of like juts in at the wrong time or just juts in really awkwardly because they've done it in a couple scenes before but again they're they're all saying like oh that's impossible that someone could track our our subs like this and then he goes well actually no (laughs) and leans in and goes it's quite simple really and and explains how you know they can they can track subs just like they can track missiles using the heat of the wake or something, some mumbo jumbo that poor um, uh, what's his name, 
the actor that plays Q, like one of these big rambles that he's had to rehearse and, and remember full of like scientific gobbledygook. And it's the it. only reason he's in this scene. Like it's the only reason he's on the boat. So somebody can give some technical babble about, oh yeah, that someone is out there and is able to track submarines. And that's the only reason Q's here. Yeah. So that's basically it. So yeah, Q says someone's able to track. Um, and later on, like outside, uh, that minister guy tells Bond that they got that tracing from diplomatic bag or some, whatever that is in Cairo. And so that's where Bond has to go to next to investigate who has got this device that can somehow track and and work out their sub paths. But this is, is what makes a, it sorry. Th- yeah. This is what makes it so confusing though, because the man who gives Bond the that like tracing is someone you've never seen before, but kind of works with M, I guess, or works in this department with Bond mm. and then gives it to Bond and then Bond puts it up there and everyone's like, blah, 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 blah. But then Bond is talking to him later and then he explains where they got it from. It's really like kind of poorly. It, it doesn't matter in the grand scheme of things. Just very poorly laid out. Like if it was someone that we've seen before who had worked with Bond, like if it was M then that totally makes sense that M would give Bond something and Bond would put it together. But this is just like a dude in a room with a load of other old dudes. And it's just like, I, I just got a bit lost. Like I got there in the end, once we got to the end of the scene, it's just kind of poorly put together how they explain it. Yeah, you're right. Like, I don't know why they did it this way and, and didn't just have a typical M kind of briefing scene. I mean, they could have done most of this in the office. I suppose they needed like a sub. Anyway, yeah, you're, you're right. It was a bit clumsily handled. Yeah, but, but this ends with them basically saying you're going to Cairo Bond because someone's trying to sell this tech. And there were 16 nuclear missiles on board. So whoever's stolen the nuclear sub has a lot of kind of capacity to, well, blow everybody up. So Bond gets sent to Cairo. Mm-hmm. But before we see that, we cut to somewhere completely different where we see a man in a very fancy looking room, like a lot of paintings on the wall, this big long table with all this kind of over-the-top food and and things like that all very uh decadent what's that word do you know what i'm trying to say decadent yeah 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 yeah. okay yeah very very up class and two men go to this man who's sitting and eating and it's a professor and a doctor and the man says excellent work on the sub tracking system it's been massively successful it's gone very well, so we're going to pay you each $10 million, which they're very happy about. Uh, but then the man who's sitting down says somebody is trying to sell these plans to world powers. So obviously these people are the ones who developed the system, but it turns out that this man isn't the or it's implied that this man isn't the one who tried to sell it and is kind of teasing this to the world powers, which is what Bond is going to investigate. So they both look very worried. And we see a woman on the other end of the table get up and leave. He's like, you better go and and leave us. Uh, Give us some some privacy. So she goes into this lift and the painting on the far side of the room opens up and there's a shark tank. It's uh, If you got your Bond bingo cards ready, you can tick (laughs) off sharks. (laughs) Yeah, it's all there. It's all there. We get some sharks and we see the woman in the lift. The floor opens up. And then she appears in the shark tank. And the man who was sitting down is then talking and saying, I know you betrayed me and over the tannoy. This man loves to do this. I won't say who it is. It's just I don't think they say his name yet. 
Um, but he's all like, yeah, you betrayed me. So then we see on this screen the woman getting attacked by the shark, which isn't very convincing. I I mean, I'm glad they're not just killing sharks anymore or just hurting them or doing anything with that. But this is just like a shark kind of nudging into a woman's body and she's just kind of like freaking around a bit, which it was kind of interesting that they chose all these kind of close-up shots of it. Um, and I'm glad that they didn't show any biting or blood because I don't really like that stuff in Bond films. But yeah, it probably would have been more effective if they cut away a little bit sooner like they normally do with these sort of scenes. Yeah, leave it a bit more to your imagination sort of thing. They've never topped the fundable thing of just the camera at the bottom of the pool going red. Yeah, sometimes simple is, is the best. Yeah, so before she actually dies, or as she's still fighting it, the painting closes, and the two men are allowed to leave, and they go up to the lift, and then just like, whoa, 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 I'm not, <laughs> whoa, 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 we saw what just happened, I'm not too, too sure about this. Uh, but eventually do get in and, and go away and we we get some stock classical music for some reason. I, I don't know the name of the piece, but I recognized it. Um, and it's something that actually recurs throughout this film. There's a lot of times, and I'm not sure if it's tied to Stromberg, this character in mm. particular, but there's a lot of times where there's just kind of very famous kind of copyright free classical music playing as part of the score. Yeah, I definitely think it's sort of, it's sort of assumed that he's like a man of class and, you know, as you say, he's got this big fancy room and big paintings and he likes to listen to classical music and uh, he ends up being, you know, a crazy man. But, you know, that's sort of like that that villain archetype, isn't it, of the, the classical music uh, but is actually crazy sort of thing, you know? Yeah, it was just odd because we haven't seen anything like that before and it happens about three times in this film. So it kind of, st- it stood out to me in a way that's not good, like not bad, but I'm just like, oh, that's odd that, Especially because we just got a funky, fresh version of the Bond theme to start the film. <laughs> and now it's playing like stock classical music pieces. It's a bit of a mismatch, but mismatch might be a good way of describing this soundtrack as a whole. But Of course, yeah. We'll get to that. Um, so then we cut to this ocean and we see this giant black base coming out of the ocean. Now, how would you describe this base? Uh, well, I would say... Do you mean visually or just overall? Just visually, like in terms of how it looks on the outside coming out. Because I put spider thing. Yeah, like a big octopus or something, like mm. rising up. That's how I would say. Yeah, because it's like got a circle bit in the middle and then like these four legs, basically. But then it's got, got like, I'm looking at a picture of it, I'll be honest. <laughs> uh, then it's got <laughs> this like round circles in, which I don't think are windows. It's It's a weird looking thing. It's 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 a cool looking base. I mean, uh, I'm sure it was. I don't I don't know this, but I'm sure it's Ken Adam again who did all the kind of like set design and stuff for this film. Uh, and and you know, it's a striking image of a of a what's going to be the villain's lair. And I think at later points in the film, it, it looks really good. I will say this first reveal of it as it's rising out of the water. I don't think they did a good job selling that it's not just a tiny model um later on they they do it better where there's a bit more kind of seamless uh like composition of it uh, with with like actual footage but with this one to me it was just looked so clearly like it is a miniature and because you know the thing with this sort of stuff is you have to get when you're using water it's incredibly difficult to sell the scale because water is is water right you can't make that look bigger or smaller really um and yeah, this th- these early shots I just think did not look good, which is a shame. 
because it's a cool design. Yeah, the design's really cool, but yeah, I agree. Like, you really need to get that sense of scale for something like this. And when you kind of look at the model or in certain shots of the model, you don't quite get that. Um, But you're right, later in the film, they do a much better job because they kind of combine the clips of it being close and kind of having a massive part of it nearby with Mm. these kind of shots. So you kind of sell the scale more. But this one, we kind of a little bit too detached from what this thing is like it feels like there was a man in a room with a load of sharks around him and now we're just kind of cutting to this model coming in the ocean they don't kind of tie the two together in a way where you kind of buy it as much as they probably need you to buy it yeah uh, but yeah the the base comes out and then we cut to two men entering the same room as well stromberg i'll just say the main villain of the film the one who killed the woman and, and things like that and there's a bald man, and then there's someone who is Jaws, and it's. <laughs> I say it like that because I never learned the bald man's name, and it's so weird to rewatch this film again where you know Jaws, you instantly know Jaws, or even if you don't know Jaws, he's so distinct and there's such a presence. So the fact that they kind of introduce him in this way, where Schoenberg is like, "Go and do this," and you know, gives them orders. But they kind of present it like these are two like equal henchmen, like Bullman and Jaws, the two big henchmen of the film. But like, no, I want to see that guy on the right, not that bald guy. <laughs> Get him out of here. Well, they, he does say he does say to the bald guy, <laughs> I love how we just call him bald guy. Yeah. Um, it's not Blofeld, by the way. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, I think he does say to the bald guy, like, follow follow Jaws's orders. So there is a bit of a, a hierarchy there, which is good because it turns out the bull guy just is crap. <laughs> it just sucks. They get rid of him quite quickly. Yeah, it's just a very nothing kind of character, which is fine, but it's kind of interesting they presented this way. But but yeah, as you say, he assigns them to go and get a microfilm copy of the sub-tracking system. So the person who's trying to sell the sub-tracking system basically has a copy of it. And they call it the microfilm throughout this entire film, basically. Mm. Um, but yeah, when they say microfilm, that's what they mean. It's a copy of it. Um, and it ends with him saying you can kill people of which we get a nice shot of jaws smiling and we see the big metal teeth, uh, inside there. And, uh, just to wrap up this kind of scene, uh, the helicopter then leaves with the professor and the doctor on it. They're very happy about that. And they're all like smiling and shaking hands because <laughs> they're now rich and we see Stromberg yeah. sitting there watching it on a screen. He hits a button and it blows up. Of which he then picks up the phone and says, say there's been a tragic accident and that the funeral was at sea. Oh, I, I really like this introduction of Stromberg, actually. Like they just they do make him seem quite crazy straight off the bat, or at least not not overtly crazy, but very like maniacal. Like the fact that he teases these two, the scientists and the doctor like that and and lets them lets them go as far as flying away in the helicopter and then just presses a button and explodes them. I just think, uh, yeah, it's just like a little bit... He likes to go a little bit extra, this guy, and um, I, I can appreciate that. Hmm, I think he's been our most stereotypical Bond villain so far. I guess Blofeld and You Only Live Twice is probably a bit more <laughs> due to the look because Stromberg doesn't have a real look. He's just kind of an old dude. I think his hair's like grey or, or white or something. Like, there's no visual look to this guy. It's just the actor. And to be honest, I think this opening scene is the best we get from this one, from Stromberg. 
because he's a little bit more mysterious and because you're trying to put stuff together and he's clearly not quite right and yeah he's he's quite menacing but also quite uh in uh yeah silly i guess i'll say mm. um, and having this kind of base which you don't really know that much about it was like it's a really intriguing one and i think the actor at least in this scene kind of sells it quite well of that tricky line that bond villains have to play of being sinister but also being kind of a bit uh silly and over the top sometimes yeah i i think he as you say is not the most it's not like he hasn't got any crazy scar or or anything like that or metal hands or a third nipple maybe he does we don't know <laughs> but um i yeah the actor like he's got very kind of like wide eyes like he's definitely got crazy eyes so that works He's got quite an interesting voice, so he's all right. And, and I do like, I mean, obviously this is a scene that introduces Jaws, and I think they do it quite well. I like how they keep they keep him, you know, mouth closed until right at the end. And like, why is he called Jaws? Oh, okay, that's kind of, all right, I get you, when he smiles. So, yeah, I think it was, um, I, I quite like this whole villain introduction. And as you say, it's it's good that uh, it's, it's moving the plot along as well. We're getting the stuff about the microfilm and everything. So it's, it, you're getting the best of both. Oh yeah, definitely. That's what I was about to say that in terms of, for the most part, at least for the first half of the film, the way this film is kind of paced is very good because Mm. this is a very packed film. There's a lot going on. You know, we had that intro sequence where it's all about the subs being stolen, but then we get a separate set piece with the skiing, but then we go to Bond and we have this old, you know, with Bond and what he's doing and him being introduced to the storyline while also having... Anya, the other agent on the other side, but then we also have Stromberg in this like sub base or this uh ocean base with Jaws, who's also what's his deal? But it's one of those where like it's just done very well. Like you get these individual scenes that stand out quite well and they're kind of put together in an order that's very smart. Where sure, I I complained how there was some stuff I kind of got lost on, but you get the general gist of it and it introduces a lot of elements quite well and quickly and effectively which is kind of exactly what you need for this sort of scale of Bond film. Yeah, absolutely. So after Stromberg blows up the scientists, we move on to back to Egypt. Um, well, not back. This is the first time in Egypt. And we see, like, we, we really are in Egypt because, like, the first shot you get is Bond on a camel in, like, the full garbs of, you know, stereotypical Egyptian person. I don't know... I didn't know how to feel about this. I mean, it's not the first time we've had Bond sort of going all in to a country's sort of cultural uh, look, but um, it did seem a little bit silly to me. Like, why does he have to be dressed like that? But anyway. uh, I I didn't mind it too much because there's at least a practical reason to it as opposed to some of the other ones. I guess so, yeah. Maybe that's that's not, yeah, maybe that's not enough to justify it. But yeah, like he is a white dude in a desert, like (laughs) wrap that man up. (laughs) <laughs> get me some sun cream now yeah uh but yeah he is on a camel with a guide and they they reach um some sort of like i want to say is it is it harem is that what that is that what it is like a, i don't know it's some sort of oasis know. isn't it like i don't think you see any water but there's a ton of trees like there's it's it's a big tent basically with loads big of cushions and, and women inside and a man but one thing before he gets in there i will say camels Camels sound terrifying. Like he, he goes and parks his camel, and it's the most hideous sounds coming from these these camels. They sound like something out of Star Wars. I swear. Uh, <laughs> That's probably where they got it from, honestly. Probably, yeah. They really make some horrible noises. But anyway, Bond goes into this tent, 
and uh, meets this man inside. And at first it's sort of this kind of like mysterious kind of vibe, like, oh, what's what's this? Is this guy good or bad? What's going on? Um, and Bond introduces himself and very quickly this man's uh, expression changes and he, he ends up being nice and friendly. And it's apparently, I guess it's just an informant that, that Bond knows of here in Egypt. But I get the impression that there was some sort of history between them because he says something about Cambridge, I think. Yeah, maybe yeah. They like in... he knows a lot about Bond. Yeah, so I guess maybe they were at Cambridge together or something like that. But anyway, Bond's there obviously to ask about the microfilm and and how we can find the person who's trying to sell it. And the other guy, this is where you get a lot of names. As we've said, the film's doing quite well in terms of plot, but I feel like they just, they introduce two two people at this point where one of them is Bond has to go find someone called uh, Max... Something I've I've immediately forgot his name. Max I have Calber. No idea. Like yeah, no like idea. he has to find someone called Max Calber. But before he can find Max Calber, he has to find someone called Fakesh for some reason, um, who's like a middleman in all of this, like secret black market trading on the microfilm. Uh, that's basically all the scene is. It's just this guy telling Bond to go find Fakesh, uh, go to his apartment. Uh, although of course it does end with yet another terrible line. Because Bond's like, you know, I'm, oh, I've really got to go now. And this guy's like, no, please, please stay, you know, stay the night here. And and Bond's like, no, I really should. And he goes, and the other other man's like, well, okay, if you say so. But then brings out, I think, like one of his numerous wives, it's 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 kind of suggested, uh, who's holding a rose, obviously this beautiful woman. And, and Bond looks around and he's like, you sure you can't be persuaded to stay? And then you get this line, which is like, oh. And he, Bond says, yeah, when when one is in Egypt... One must delve deeply into its treasures. I'm just mm-hmm. like, oh my god! Yeah. <laughs> oh my god! That's just like, oh. <laughs> it's one of it's... those where you like to think with Bond that he is making them up on the spot, but this one is <laughs> such a like. If he did, like, well, surely he didn't. Like the positively shocking one, I can believe somebody might see a load of sparks and be like, "Ah, oh, that's shocking!" and say, yeah. "Shocking, positively shocking, right?" Like, yeah. I think that's what helps make it effective. You believe in that moment he made it up. A lot of these Roger Moore ones, nah, nah, mate. <laughs> he had that written on his hand, like just in case it came up. I like to think he has a whole book of lines for different situations. <laughs> He's like, "Oh, that's a good one. I'll write that down for later." He was just on the camel flicking through, like, "What can I use? Ah, treasure! Brilliant." Oh, that got a big groan from me. But anyway, um, that's the end of the scene. We move on afterwards to There is something about that scene, though, Joe, that you missed. Is there? Is there something? So this is the first time that we hear Fogka Martini get tied to Roger Moore's bond. Oh, really? Yeah, so the man, when he's talking about Cambridge and stuff like that, he offers him a Fogka Martini. Now, I don't think he says shaken, not stirred. He might do, but yeah, this is... It's something quite interesting about this film because, you know, they intentionally stepped away from that drink and the shaken, not stirred thing for Roger Moore. But multiple times in this film, it comes up. And this is the first time. He's like, do you want a fucking martini? And that's when Bond is like, no, I want information and I need to kind of go soon. I guess there you go. Like we're saying now, they're, they're going back to, you only live twice. They're, they're going back to familiarity. And yeah, there it is an action. I mean, if they were really going back to that film, they would offer to him stirred, not shaken, but... <laughs> yeah, that guy comes back. Well, I can't remember his name now. Ah, oh, oh, that's... Oh, Henderson. Henderson. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He needs to come back. I don't care if he was stabbed in the back. 
comes back with like a hump or something. <laughs> yeah. Uh, anyway, so yeah, Bond uh, cuts to Bond in. This is where I said like we need more text on screen. I presume this is just Cairo now. Um, mm. uh, yeah, some sort of city anyway. And Bond is there at Akesh's apartment at his house, um, walking through some streets to get there. And uh, as he's doing this, you get some very like very extreme close-ups of some eyes watching him. So he's he's clearly being followed. Someone's on his on his on his tail. Um, but he he just enters into Fakesh's home because no one answers and the door's open. So he walks on in and starts to have a little look around. No one seems to be there. Uh, he takes note of a photo of Fakesh so he knows what he looks like. There's one sort of on the side. Um, and then all of a sudden, this another beautiful lady walks in and kind of very sultry and, oh, what are you doing here? And... Um, Obviously, Bond is there to find Fakesh, so he's asking her about him, and she's being quite coy and, and not really revealing much, and it's clearly trying to keep him distracted. Uh, I, ne- I don't, I never really got whether she was overtly working for like the henchman who is like the one who's following him in the scene, or like how wrapped up she was in this because she d- she seems to be covering for something, but then she also seems to be surprised when. The bad guys there. Did you understand any more about that? Or I didn't I just... really get it. I don't know. Yeah, I didn't understand if she was tied to the bald man or tied to the guy that Bond is trying to find. I would assume that Fakesh or whatever his name. I'm assuming she was tied to him. But then why would she be there if that's the case? Just leave. Like, I don't know. Yeah. I would assume that she's. Yeah, I don't know. It doesn't make sense. It's yeah. It's weird. Anyway, so they they start they start. Um, they start kissing, obviously. I think there's, I can't remember. The, there's another kind of groan worthy line about desserts or something like, or something about food and needing desserts. And they start kissing. Um, and as they're doing that, you get the the person that was watching Bond. He's, he's up at the back through this sort of grate and is about to shoot Bond. And the woman sees this out of the corner of her eye and screams. And so Bond turns around and uses her as a human shield and she gets shot instead. He just throws the body to the side, <laughs> dumps her to the side and, and uh, chases after the, the person who just tried to kill him, um, which leads into uh, a fight scene with, with the, the bald guy. I, I wrote down his name, actually. So it's on this page of notes. His name was Sandor, by the way. Sandor. Sandor. Yeah, Bond catches up to him, or I think he like jumps out at him and they end up having a, a fight scene on the roof of these houses. And um, I really didn't have much to say about this fight scene. I didn't really think it was very good, um, which is a shame because I remember, this is one of those scenes that I, in my head, I remember being better uh, or at least kind of cooler. Um, But yeah, it's just kind of a bit of a slow and and cumbersome fight on, on the roofs. Nothing really to me interesting happens. Like there's no great stunts or anything. It's just the usual. Um, the way it ends is the thing I think a lot of people would remember, which is how eventually you get Bond um, or you get Sandor, the bald guy, kind of right on the edge of this house, high up, kind of on his on his tiptoes almost falling off, leaning off, and, and Bond's got him uh, or holding on to Bond's tie to stay up. And Bond's there asking, where's Fakesh? And kind of teasing him with it whilst he's nearly falling off and uh, eventually... He uh, kind of gives in and says he's at the pyramids. And then Bond just sort of like chops away the tie, uh, his his grip on the tie, and the man falls down. Um, 
falls down to the ground. And I remember that scene being a lot cooler, like a, a, a bit more um, of Bond, like being a bit of an actual like assassin and the killer. But actually, it wasn't that good. Maybe I'm getting mixed up with the scene in Fiora's Eyes Only. But yeah, it wasn't great. Yeah, I think... I don't know if I would say this is the worst scene in the film, but it's, def- it def- it's definitely up there, which is more saying that the film is pretty good. But yeah, this whole thing was just really lame. Uh, the main thing I like about it is that we get a really good sense of kind of Cairo and Egypt as well, because we get a lot of Egypt in this film. It's, it mm. ticks that box for me in terms of like really setting a place. So this scene overall works well because we see Bond going through the streets and we see him going to an Egyptian home and then goes onto the rooftop. So you get nice views there. So I really like it from that perspective that we get to see the city from another light like during the day. Uh, but the actual scene itself was just bad. Uh, like when they go and run away, like when Bond is chasing the guy, it's more like a light jog than an actual kind <laughs> of chase. It's like very sportingly. And when they're fighting, I think the actual fight is just kind of bad because it felt like each move they make was happening like independently of all the other ones. Like it was very obviously choreographed and put together, but it was like not, there was no flow to it. It was like, let's have this move and then that stops. And then they're like, right, let's do the next move now. There was no like going into each of them to make it one cohesive fight. It's just all these kind of awkward moves that feel so separated. And once again, we get no music for a lot of this. So the fact that it feels like a slow fight and there's no music in the background, we just get car horns and stuff like that. Yeah, it's just bad. Just just really bad. Like, it's short, so it doesn't bother me. And I do like the tie ending bit, but yeah, just an awful, awful fight and kind of set up. I feel like there could have been a better line. I, I can't remember what the line is now when, when he when he does let him go off of his tie and he falls down. I think he just says something like, uh, what a helpful chap or something like that. And it's like, surely, uh, was there no tie related pun? <laughs> Come on. You had one for the treasures of Egypt. Could you not think of a tie related pun for that situation? Yeah, you could just say, I guess he's all tied up or something. Like, oh, there you go. Easy. Easy. But yeah, again, just bad. But it doesn't matter too much. It's just with this being a long film, these sort of scenes, I've said it before, like I would definitely take this scene to just get cut, but like it's fine and I don't like it. But yeah, because it's long, I would, if this one disappeared, I wouldn't be upset. Yeah, they should have just had Jaws. Jaws is a is a lone, you know, a lone man. He doesn't need he doesn't need his bald friend with him. Yeah, Jaws <laughs> wearing a tie. That'd be cool. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, so now Bond knows where to go. He knows that the man he's looking for is at the pyramids, which is a very vague thing to say. He didn't really give any details. <laughs> that's true, actually. Yeah, <laughs> pyramids are pretty big, and there's quite a few of them. But whatever, pyramids. <laughs> that's fine. Um, and we cut to the pyramids at night this time. So it was during the day, now we're at night. And there's this kind of show and presentation that's going on at, at the current time where we got a load of people in chairs kind of looking at the pyramids and we have kind of voiceover talking about, look how ancient and cool and mysterious the sphinxes and the pyramids are and all these kind of different lights and all these shadows going on. And we see Bond show up and approach the crowd and in the crowd, sitting down, he sees Anya and Fanesh. I can't remember the name. The man he's looking for. Uh, oh, Fakesh. Sitting down, F- Fakesh, Fanesh. Yeah. Uh, yeah, sitting down and talking. So Bond decides to sit nearby and kind of watches them. 
And as part of this kind of show, because the show also has like music tied to it as well. So something they do throughout this scene is kind of sync up the music that's meant to be happening, you know, in this scene with other kind of moments. And we get multiple times where we see that Jaws is nearby and he gets lit up. Like initially he's quite dark, but the lights from the show lights him up. And then we Mm. get this big musical swell that kind of plays at the same time. And I think, I don't quite know what happens here because the guy gets nervous and wants to leave. And I think it's somewhat implied that maybe he saw Jaws, but I, maybe that's not correct. The way I saw it is that when, when you do get that that light effect on Jaws and he lights up and you get... I wrote down that it sounds like a Doctor Who sound effect. I really did not like oh, you that, that musical. It just didn't... It really seemed just to stick out to me. It sounded really sci-fi to me. But um, anyway, but the fact they do it twice as well is what really hooked me. Uh, But yeah, I think my impression is like when that happens, that's like him seeing that. So that's why he gets all panicky. That's what I thought so too. But then I don't know where Jaw is actually located in this scene because he's just so separated where his shot is. Mm, That is true. They don't give a good idea of kind of location. Yeah. No, so yeah, so the man leaves and runs away and Bond follows the man who kind of goes into the dark because they're kind of out in the desert, basically. And yeah, so he goes off away from the show and we see Jaws getting lit up again and another swirl and Jaws also starts following the man. And Jaws is wearing this big blue jacket suit that just doesn't fit him. It's just hey, too big. It must be hard to find clothes when you're like 10 feet tall. <laughs> well, that's what I'm thinking, right? Like, he's so he's such a big guy. Do you actually know his height? Is it seven foot? It, yeah, I mean, it's got to be up there, right? Yeah, like, he is a huge guy. So it kind of... I wonder if they put him in this huge jacket suit to make him seem smaller. Because it is comical that they managed to find such a huge man a suit that is too big for him. <laughs> Oh, maybe he just likes it airy. You know, he's in he's in Egypt. He That's be true. Constricted. I feel like this jacket is where most of the budget went, like <laughs> on the fabric. For <laughs> that thirteen million, most of it went towards that jacket. Yeah, they had to have a whole team of people just sewing nonstop for weeks. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I mean, it adds. I like it because it's weird, and George is kind of an odd presence and. It's interesting at the start of the film because everyone knows Jaws' iconic look, right, with the uh, the the white shirt and uh, what, what are they called? Oh, Things that uh, go over the, the shoulders. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like everyone knows that look. But he starts off, he doesn't really look like that. And seeing him like this in this baby blue jacket, it's like, it, it works because Jaws is an odd guy and it almost makes it more menacing that having this person in this kind of odd jacket slowly walking uh, down uh, so this leads to jaws chasing the guy and the man finds a metal gate and he opens it up and locks it with a chain and jaws approaches the gate goes to open it he can't so he decides to get his teeth out his metal teeth and bite into the chain and completely breaks it um, and it turns out that inside that room is actually just completely closed off so the man is now stuck and it's just Jaws and this guy. So Jaws goes up to him, doesn't say anything. or And that's kind of Jaws' thing, that he doesn't speak. It's something mm. I actually didn't pick up on until right towards the end of the film. Like, I never thought, like, Jaws doesn't talk too much. I just kind of... 
I just never thought about it, but that is part of his gimmick. He doesn't oh, talk. Yeah. I mean, we'll see in the next film that that's that's one of the big uh, kind of oh moments is when he does talk. Yeah. Yeah, but it, I only put that together right at the end. Like at this mm. point, I didn't really think about it. I just thought, yeah, why would he talk? He's I mean, just coming fair, to kill the guy. He's the way he looks is like he don't he doesn't need to right. I mean, he's visually striking enough, and you he, you get the idea he's not a good guy just just by how he looks. Sorry, <laughs> sorry, Richard Keel. <laughs> like, <laughs> I like the idea of watching this film and being like, hmm, he's not a good guy, is he? It's like when an old like like when your mum watches it. Like, mm, I don't like him. He doesn't mm. seem very nice. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so Jaws basically grabs the guy and very slowly bites into his neck, uh, which kills him. So you don't see anything. There's no blood. You don't really see any mark. He basically just kind of snuggles his neck a bit, and then the guy falls <laughs> to the ground. Oh, it's just sound quite nice. Yeah. Which always kind of creeped me out a bit more. Like, when I was younger, I was very creeped out by Jaws. And it's not because of the way he looked, it's because of this way that he killed people. Like, the idea of somebody biting into somebody's neck and they die. And I think the fact that they don't really show it, they just show him kind of going towards the neck, and then he just collapses. I'm like, that's... Like, my imagination filled in the gaps in a way where I was like, yeah, Jaws is kind of crazy. Like, I found Jaws very intimidating when I was a kid. I mean, I gotta say, this whole scene, apart from the terrible Doctor Who sound effects that I mentioned about, uh, this whole scene of Egypt tonight at the at the pyramids and the light show and um, the the darkness and the colours of the lights and the voiceover that you're getting throughout all of this, like as you say, there's this narration from the light show, like this really kind of like stern voice that's given this long spiel about I don't know what it is, but you know, going over all the top of this. I think it's great. Like this is definitely for me one of the standout scenes of the film. Um, just really well done, and I love how much they lean into Jaws being sort of this universal horror monster. You know, like Frankenstein or I guess Dracula with the way yeah, he Dracula, kills his enemies. Yeah. yeah, I mean, there's a bit of both there, really. But um, like he even looks like Frankenstein, really. Like the very harsh and like lines of his face and everything. Um, it's just great. Like, I think it's really. In terms of using kind of like lighting and, and music as a way to emphasise a scene, it's it's uh, one of the best, I think, in, in any Bond film so far we've seen. Completely agree, 100%. Like, it's such a smart and well-done version of that whole... Something you see in a lot of films, but I don't think we've seen that much in the Bond franchise so far of a show is going on and is happening and everyone is just watching and enjoying the show, but like the real horrible stuff is happening nearby and everyone is blissfully unaware. Mm. Like it's one of the best kind of versions of those scenes I've, I've ever seen in a film. And it's something that you see a ton, a lot, ton of, and is I like the concept and this is just that concept done really, really well. Like the music is so loud. The narration is so loud and he has, the narrator has such the right tone where he is trying to be like big and mysterious, but it comes up as so creepy when you're kind of disconnected from the show. And the fact that it's like out in the open in this desert, like that's so smart to do it like that because yeah. it's got this isolation to it. Like you feel isolated, but the show is what makes you feel safe 
because it's a show and you kind of buy into it and you've got all the lights and the music, like you feel safe in the middle of the desert at night because of the show. So you take this guy out of it and still have that safety nearby and remind you of that safety with the music and the visuals. But obviously he's not safe and he's being attacked by Jaws. It's just, yeah, brilliant. Very well done. Mm-hmm. Uh, so this leads to Bond basically catching up with them. So Jaws comes out of where that gate was. Uh, Bond points the gun at Jaws. The lights go off and then back on again. And Jaws is gone. <gasps> what? He disappeared. He did a Batman. Yeah. I don't know if this is meant to tie into the monster kind of element that you you mentioned. Um, I guess, yeah, I guess it could. I, I really, I just, every every time I think of these scenes, I thought, I think I might have mentioned it last time, but I'd love to see like an outtake where the lights come on and, and Jaws is still trying to get away. I just always picture that. I just like, oh, I'd love that. Like, you know, he's quite a big guy. I don't imagine him being able to move that quickly. But um, yeah, I think it's definitely leaning into that. Uh, not, not like a fantasy sort of thing. Not like a, uh, I think something uh alien but like yeah he's very he's very mysterious like he's, he's just suddenly disappears because hmm, they don't do anything like this in the rest of the film this is the only time but it works well because it's early on and as you say there's that mystery that goes along and something i really like about jaws is how that line in terms of is this someone who's supernatural like are they crossing that supernatural line uh they kind of walk it very well where they sometimes add in these elements but other times kind of don't and sometimes it's mm. very intimidating but also jaws can also be kind of funny even in this film like i feel like moonraker is where the comedy really went off with jaws but even in this film it can be a little bit uh silly and funny at the same time it's kind of a really great mix of intimidating and comedy which is what i said before about uh strongberg i think <laughs> uh, yeah. i think jaws reflects that very well too yeah supernatural that's exactly what i was trying to think of because you as we later see in the film there are moments where you know any normal person will, will die in these situations, but Jaws just somehow survives. So, yeah, you're right. They definitely toy the line with that. But it works. And that's the thing. I can't really tell you how it works, unfortunately. Uh, but it's something only Bond can really do. And sometimes they do these things and it works and sometimes it doesn't. But it, there's a reason why this is the template and the most iconic one, because the balance they reached, accidental or not, is really good for this film and with Jaws. Yeah. Uh, so Jaws has now disappeared and Anya shows up and or he's watching basically and Bond searches the man's body because he's been killed and finds a journal which has a location and time in it which is I believe meant to be when he's meeting the other guy so the I keep saying guy a lot but the guy in the tent says you need to find a guy but before you find that guy you got to find the other guy <laughs> but now this is the guy who's meeting the other guy and this is the meeting place for the two guys meeting up all make sense everyone on the same page now absolutely yeah 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 <laughs> uh so yeah anya is waiting for bond outside and she's like you killed him and he's like no i i didn't kill him i just found he was dead and then two men just show up and start attacking bond i'm assuming that they're supposed to be russian working with anya on the case yeah i think so yeah because she just kind of watches and we get more big music playing as well as part of the show and Bond kind of takes them out and that's actually kind of it. Uh, I, don't, I don't really want to criticise this fight scene because there's kind of nothing to it, but it's just kind of 
I guess, a way to have a... Like, I guess we got all these lights and music. we got to have Bond have a little bit of fisticuffs, right, to to pair it with. Yeah, yeah, I guess so. I kind of, as you say, it's such a nothing bit to end off the scene. He just he just walks off and, you know, have a good night and, and walks off sort of thing. I, I will say this is, like, we're, we're seeing more of, of Anya now and the whole beginning of this film is set up to be, you know, very much a parallel between Bond and this Russian Russian agent, you know, get me your best agent. It's what the Russian guy says. And, and so, you know, that's what M says about Bond. And so this, it's presumed that, you know, triple X is one of their best and like a female James Bond immediately. Like I'm not getting, I feel like they're setting this up, but not really delivering it. Like why did she, I, I, I don't know. I, I just wish there could have been a bit more of her in this scene rather than she just showing up right at the end. Maybe I'm asking for too much there. Because to be fair, like at least they're doing something different with the Bond girl in this film, which is more than you know what they've done previously. So I don't know. I just think like if they really want to make this seem like she is competent spy, then she often seems like she's just arriving to places too late and not really doing much ultimately. Well, she was there first, to be fair. Oh, that is true. She did. She did fine for cash. Yeah. Yeah, and I think what you're talking about, we get a lot of in later scenes. So I think the focus here was more this kind of jaws and then bond kind of just being a little bit behind in his own way because bond also didn't get there in time yeah so the next scene is at that club that bond saw in fakesh's notebook he's meeting with max kalba the guy <laughs> that guy yeah, the guy uh the guy it's in the uh Mu- mujaba club mujaba club which is just this you know egyptian club he walks in, it's all this fancy looking place and Bond is all dressed up nicely. Oh, is he in a white tux in this scene or am I making No, that? I think it's a black tux. Is it like a black it's, tux? It's the okay. more traditional black tux and bow tie. Oh, right, because like, the whole building is quite white on the walls actually. So yeah, mm. he's in the black tux and um, he immediately bumps into Anya, who is also there. Uh, kind of not really not really answered how she, she got there. I'm guessing she followed Bond. So I guess that's kind of what you're saying. Like she's obviously doing some work behind the scenes but maybe we we're just not seeing. Um, but yeah, she's she's followed Bond there and um, they sort of introduce themselves and, and reveal to each other that they both know exactly who each other is. You know, she's saying, or he's saying, oh, Triple X, I presume. And, and she starts to list off uh, all of James Bond and, and his history and uh, Royal Navy and signed up to the Secret Service. And uh, they go to the, the bar and um, that's when you get more of the vodka martini because she knows that's his drink and vice versa. He knows that hers is a, I don't know, probably is it vodka on the rocks or something like that. But um, this seems quite interesting because as they are there and, and kind of showing off to each other how much their intel knows and, you know, bigging up the east and west sides, um, you get Anya kind of telling about Bond and how he's got a license to kill and... Um, likes to sleep around with women and then he, she says married once um wife killed and and he cuts her off and it's like i know that we had an element of this in diamonds are forever very very briefly in the pre-title sequence about bond getting revenge but this is actually the first time now where we, we're getting it in the dialogue that's addressing bond's marriage and obviously tracy's death and uh you know it's not much and it's not really something i guess the film really would ever dwell on very much like it's just you can't can't really see that ever happening uh, with this era of bond but it's nice that they bring it up and 
kind of Bond very quickly cuts her off and says, you know, I think you've made your point and is clearly quite, uh, you know, emotionally re- responsive, responsive to that. And um, it's quite nice, like, actually just getting that and, and seeing the film address some of Bond's history. Well, I don't know how much of this was them trying to heavily steer back into the originals, right? Like, in this same scene, we have the Fokker Martini stuff and there was kind of a real effort on it, but... I liked it as well. I thought it was a really nice nod to that film, but I felt like they'd never really, or at least at this point, hadn't really figured out what continuity really was or how that kind of plays together because this does imply all these films did happen kind of in this order somewhat, uh, which if you think about that too much is kind of nonsense, but that's fine. Uh, but <laughs> So, you know, I think I like it because you kind of have to treat these as more like nods to the previous films rather than one constant continuity. Mm. Like, we wouldn't really get anything like that until the Daniel Craig era, and even then there's issues with that for different reasons. Um, So I liked it, but yeah, don't try and tie all these films together. They didn't know what they were doing, or that's the impression I get. They had no idea. They just like to drop these sort of things in there. So if you treat it as that, then they're quite cool. But if you think about it too much you're you're not gonna have a good time yeah exactly just take it for what it is uh anyway in this in this uh mujaba club they they get their drinks and um they eventually find max max calber who's sitting down and he's the one with the microfilm and he he has it in his pocket and him uh, bond and and anya are there uh, ready to try and get it off of him and he, he sort of opens up the bidding he expects them to start bidding money for it and you know, it's clearly really enjoying the situation that he's in this this uh, Max guy, and I, I don't know. You really don't see much of this character, but I I really liked I really liked this the guy. I think um just had like a quite a quite a good screen presence, like his how he looks and his voice. Um, but anyway, as he's doing that, you get this shot of uh, outside where Jaws is is pulling up in um in this van, like mechanic van uh, outside. And, and back inside, someone comes up to Max and says he's got a phone call. So he has to go and answer the phone and, and leave Bond and Anya there waiting at the table. And as he goes to answer, or goes into sort of like a little phone booth cubicle, uh, that's where Bond, uh, sorry, that's where Jaws is outside, kind of pretending to tie his shoe. And there he is, ready once again to do the whole Dracula vampire stuff inside this uh, this phone booth area and get the microfilm back off of Max Calber. And um, I've got to say, I mean, I think the first instance we just saw this in the Egyptian bit, in the pyramids bit with, with uh, Fakesh was good. This one, not as good. I think, I think mainly just because we've seen it so closely together, like the exact same shot of, of Jaws, like looming over, about to bite into his neck. But I also just think they, put, they cut in this really awkward shot of, of Max, like uh, of... Jaws's POV of, of Max's face, and it just looked really silly to me. <laughs> like, obviously, he's wide-eyed and terrified, but it just looked bad to me. Um, it kind of ruined it a little bit, but that's just that's just my my opinion. Um, but yeah, Jaws kills this guy and, and takes the microfilm off of him and makes an escape. Bond realizes that something's up, like taking a bit too long time, so he goes to the the phones and finds Max's body there, slumped in it. Um, realizes that the microfilm is gone and notices that the window or some sort of door is open and goes to follow Jaws outside. Uh, he also finds like this little out, out of order sign and 
bonks it on Max's body, which is quite a nice touch, I thought. Oh, yeah. I, I, I'm not sure if I like that. It seems oh. seems a bit out of order. <laughs> well, didn't. <laughs> but, uh, there you go. I didn't mean to do that. But something I will say is that I agree that I like Max as well. My note for this character, who is so, like, he gets, like, a minute of screen time with that, is creepy little voice, I like him. Uh, (laughs) i like him yeah because he has he has got that voice and stuff and the way he speaks it's very kind of quiet it's kind of a more distorted version of what we saw with blofeld in you only live twice it's kind of like a miniature version of that but Mm, i mean i quite like yeah i mean i quite like the jaws scene they do something else with the music and the music is such a big point of emphasis for this film but they do something kind of similar here to what they did in the last scene where throughout all of this in this club there's this music playing and there's a load of people dancing to it and it's quite upbeat music like i think meant to be quite egyptian sounding music not stereotypical but you know egyptian kind of upbeat dancing music from the 70s and it changes depending on what is happening and being shown on screen so that music gets very intense and very loud and very chaotic when it comes to Jaws actually being killed and then kind of dies down again. So I kind of like that touch. I thought that was really cool where initially this music just is, it's just kind of club music and everyone's just there in a club having a good time and Bond is just showing up and talking and stuff. But the fact that they take it and then warp it and distort it to match what is happening, I thought that worked really well. And not all the music choices in this film work for me, and maybe it is kind of copying the last scene a little bit too much because they, they did a similar thing. But I thought it was smart. It, it was another smart way they're using the music to kind of emphasize and focus on what's going on and, and elevate it a little bit. That is true. I did forget about that music bit. And I do remember liking that as I was watching it because um, it does have that that cut. It's got close-ups of the instruments playing as the music's swelling. And yeah, it, it is nice. It is nicely done. I just wish this scene was maybe just a little bit spaced out from the previous one. That's the only thing. Yeah, I agree with that. It is very... But it's another one where it's kind of short. And I guess I might as well mention it now. The pacing in this film overall is a lot better than the last two films. Like, it's longer than those, but they actually fill the scenes a lot more. Or at least Mm. in the first half anyway. And this is another case of that, where a lot is kind of happening. There's plot stuffs and... Yeah, we already had one scene with the pyramids and now we're straight to this club scene and it gets you to where you need to go and gets the set pieces then kind of go. So yeah, this one is quite close to the other one but i think that's overall kind of part of how this film is paced where a lot kind of happens and a lot of the scenes are kind of more functional and purposeful while also being quite good on their own yeah that's true which i I can appreciate for sure oh definitely Uh, so this leads to bond following jaws in his big jacket (laughs) it's another big jacket for jaws um like he's wearing like what would you call it like the old timey detective Sort yeah, of like Inspector Gadget sort of thing. Yeah, but again, they found another one. It's more budget. <laughs> they spent more budget <laughs> to get Jaws a big, like, yeah, old-timey detective sort of jacket. Another two million gone. Yeah. <laughs> no wonder Harry, uh, what salesman, left the project. I'm not paying for all these jackets. <laughs> not going to be me. Receipts. How much? Yeah. Is this the first film he didn't work on, by the way? I think it is. I think by this point, I think he'd he'd invested in some poor choices and he had to sell his shares yeah so uh, quickly to mention it because i think it's 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 quite important in terms of the background stuff originally it was albert broccoli and harry selsman's were the producers and kind of the guys behind bond and driving all of it 
Uh, but this is the first one where Harry has left. So now it's just uh, Broccoli on the project. And I won't go into the details, but there were some trouble with the production and things like that. And some of that ties to the fact that one of the producers and one of the people who's been there since the very beginning has left. And as far as I'm aware, never comes back. No, that's it now. Uh, yeah, so back to the big jacket. So, um... <laughs> <laughs> What did you think of the colour? Yeah, it was very nice. Um, but yeah, George gets into his van because it was his, he was pretending to be a workman. So he had a workman van and Bond jumps into the back and then Anya shows up and jumps in as well. And we get another pun. They really come thick and fast, don't they? Like pretty intense in terms of the pun joke or quip ratio in this film. And what was it in this scene? Yeah. So yeah. So Anya says, where's Max? And Bond says he was cut off permanently. Oh. Which I guess is meant to be because he was on the phone and phone lines get cut off. Yeah. Rather than he was bit to death. I guess that's a nice way that of saying one, that. That one shouldn't have made the notebook. I don't think that one was quite good enough. Sorry. No, he should have scribbled it out. So yeah, try again. through that. Uh, but they're, they're basically talking and we get a little bit of like almost bickering between the two because we're, we're now really seeing the rivalry between them. We got that a bit out of the bar, but now it's kind of fully in there where they both know who each other are. They're both trying to do the same thing. Neither of them are trying to stop each other. They're just both there trying to do the same thing at the same time. And they've both clearly got egos that are kind of clashing a bit. Yeah. And I will say, I think even at this point where we're still quite early on in the film and, and they haven't had that many scenes together, but I do think one of the good things about this film is that there is definitely good chemistry between the two actors um, and, and the two characters, which which helps a lot. Even if sometimes the dialogue or, or whatever maybe might not be as good, I think you can definitely tell that there's just something a bit more between them than we've had with previous Bond girls and, and Bond actors. Yeah, and I think it works with Roger because they've built him up to be so kind of, I guess, full of himself. And yeah. in the last two films, calling everyone darling and stuff and being so fish out of water and just oblivious to stuff. So seeing him go up against a woman agent who's also very good was just a really smart choice in terms of how they've portrayed Roger Moore up to up to this film. Oh, I wonder how many darlings there were in this film. I didn't keep track. There was a few. There was, was a there few a few? Darlings. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. Oh, good. Not many robes, but a few darlings. <laughs> I don't have any robes, actually. So that's, mm. uh, that's upsetting. What a shame. Oh. If they had jaws in a robe, that would have <laughs> saved it. But... That, that would have blown the budget. <laughs> Velvet rope. No, we can't. <laughs> I have a family, please. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so we see that Jaws in the front has a a radio and a microphone, so he can just hear them talk. He is very much aware they are in the back bickering to each other, which makes it kind of funny, to be honest. Hearing and it wasn't them the, bicker it... and Jaws just listening to them do it. They're not even being that quiet as well. <laughs> yeah, you could help. probably hear it normally, couldn't you? Just yeah. like, <laughs> arguing like that. Probably. Uh, and yeah, they drive away, basically. Um, they're waiting for Jaws to stop so they can get the microfilm off him. And as we see this fan kind of driving down, we get a, a different version of the Nobody Does It Better song play, which I like overall the idea of them putting the theme in the the film i feel like doing this rewatch i i seem to have a lot of problems with it and i do oh, kind really? of have a problem with it in this one where i just don't really like the alternative versions 
Like, I wouldn't mm. say they're bad, but I don't need, like, a slow, sexy guitar version of this theme. I kind of preferred the piano. And for me, I think the vocals are the main core part of what makes that song so good. So these alternative versions kind of feel a little bit limp because they just don't have that. Instead, it's just kind of getting new instruments and just re re-recording it. So it's not bad, but I was kind of a little bit let down because I just don't think this theme is strong enough to to reuse as they normally would throughout the score. I, I would I would agree with that. Yeah, I mean, that is one of the things with this film is that the music, to me, overall, didn't stand out hugely, apart from, as I said before, the Bond 77 sort of disco theme, which is used a lot. But apart from that, nothing really kind of, yeah, nothing really impressed me massively, so... Maybe that maybe that's part of it. Maybe you're right. I mean, I think maybe that's something I didn't actually quite take into consideration is that it, the lyrics and the whole nobody does it better is really one of the, the best things about that song. Yeah. Hmm. Well, I think overall in the music, this is clearly a big budget score. Like John Barry, I believe it's John, it must be John Barry, right? Uh, went all out on this soundtrack. Wait, no, it's not John Barry. Wait a minute. Oh. Marvin. Marvin? Marvin? What? Oh, Marvin Hamlish. Yeah. Oh. That might explain okay. why it has a different feel to it. I assumed it was John Barry because it's this film, but no, it's it's Marvin. Oh. Can yeah. you do a Marvin and the Chipmunks Marvin impression? <laughs> Absolutely not. I have no clue. <laughs> oh. Just when the guy shouts, Marvin! Or is it Alvin? I don't know. I think it's both. Yeah, isn't it Alvin and the Chipmunks? Could be Marvin. <laughs> <laughs> I do like Marvin more, though. Marvin and the I thought it was both. Uh, I actually have no clue. But, I, yeah, I, I guess that's maybe one of the things then. Maybe because, yeah, it wasn't John Barry. Although, that being said, you know, we said last time, the man with the golden gun was also John Barry, but he didn't like it himself very much. So, yeah. Yeah. It's yeah, I, I just always assumed John Barry wrote the Bond 77 song. Yeah. There you go. Yeah, okay. But yeah, this has a very different feel. And yeah, I feel like it is the most bombastic and in-your-face kind of soundtrack. And it's the one that has the most variety to it. It jumps around all over the place. You can have... There's so many different styles and things like that. And sometimes for me, it really works like the opening sequence with the skiing and the the Bond 77. And sometimes Mm. it just kind of doesn't. And that kind of was... That kind of sums up my overall feelings about this score. Sometimes it's really, really good and some of the best we've heard. And sometimes they probably should have been a little bit more consistent in terms of the the tone and, and you know what they were going for with the score. I think it jumps around too much for me to really say that I really enjoyed it. Yeah, I think that's a fair... I think that's a fair comment. Cool, thanks, Joe. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Marvin wouldn't agree, but uh, I'm glad you do. Well, Marvin can go suck an egg. Whoa! <laughs> Whoa. I'm, trying to, I'm trying to bring back that phrase... So <laughs> that's if good. You could, if you can, if you could start using that, that'd be great. Oh, there must be a Bond film where he kills someone with an egg, and he's like, "I guess he can go suck an egg." Like, <laughs> I hope that comes up. It's one of Q's gadgets—an explosive egg. Yeah. In fact, no, I think that is a no. That's milk bottles. I'm thinking of milk bottles. Oh, it's milk bottles, obviously. Damn, Come on, Joe. so close, so close. <laughs> um. So yeah, so we get some really nice wide shots here as well. It's something that they've done earlier in the film as well this film brings back the you only live twice wide shots which makes me think that lewis gilbert is just someone who loves those type of shots and 
I I love that he loves it because I love them um, because oh, they look really good. Yeah, like this is this would have now been the film that goes back to the wider aspect ratio, right? Didn't I believe even really so. Think it about felt that, wide. Yeah, like the first two of Roger Moore's, I think we commented how they were a bit more square, not perfectly square, but more square, um, which took away from the cinematic aspect for me a little bit. But you're right. Like, yeah, this one now definitely goes back to proper cinematic widescreen black bars and everything. And you do get these big vista shots. Yeah. Yeah. So all this is, is basically the van driving through the desert, but it looks incredible because we get the sun setting and things like that. And it just looks really nice. It's, it's exactly what they had in You Only Live Twice, just for Egypt. And it's what is part of the reason why I really like the Egyptian setting in this film, because they set it really well. So it's not mm. just the different locations, it's the fact they go back to the big shots and yeah, they all pretty much look incredible. Yep. Yeah, definitely. So in the back of the van, uh, it's kind of suggested that some time has passed because uh, Anya falls asleep on Bond's shoulder, um, but they... The, the van gets parked and they wake up and um, they sneak out of the van and, and Jules just gets out and walks off. Like he doesn't actually try and do anything with them quite yet, but they they get out of the van and they're in some sort of um, some sort of Egyptian ruin. It's probably like one really famous one. I don't know, but uh, it's like got loads of columns, like a big grid of columns, basically. Yeah, like um, hieroglyphs all over them. Yeah, yeah. And they go to follow Jaws. Um, Bond does take the car keys just as they go, or the van keys just as they go past, though, which is an important point later on. So he grabs the car keys and they go and look for Jaws because, yeah, he's he's just wandered off. <laughs> he's just walking through. And it kind of leads to this kind of uh, stealthy scene where they're, they're looking around and there's all these, as I say, there's all these columns, so they're peering around all the columns and being really sneaky and trying to find out where he is. And you get all these shots of, of Jaws kind of in the background of shots and uh, being kind of very ghostly in a way and always one step ahead of them sort of thing. Uh, and then it does eventually turn into a bit of a Scooby-Doo at one point where they're, they're both looking and they're like back into each other uh, and like startle each other. Um, it's kind of nice. It's like them two working together and, Trying to find out what's going on. I um, like but... that because she like prepares a karate chop. <laughs> I don't know what <laughs> she was it. really. I'll get you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'd like to think that you know that would actually do something, but I mean, I don't know. That's quite. It's, it's saying something. Then you know, I'm going to judo chop you. The person might have a gun. Like, oh, yeah, I think Bond murder. has a gun, doesn't he? Because he pulls his yeah. gun out and he's just chasing <laughs> them. So Bond's got a gun. She's like, ah, oh, I'll, I'll chop you. Judo chop. Oh, maybe not. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah. It turns out that Jaws is above them on like some sort of walkways because there's kind of scaffolding all around this ruin and, and lots of things being done around it. So, yeah, uh, he you have to you might have to remind me the order of this because I, it kind of all blurs together. But they're basically underneath where Jaws is and and he goes to throw a big rock on them. Yeah, he does throw a rock down. I don't think you see him on... throw it, but you just see it land next to them. Yeah. Is it, it's just on, is it just on Bond or is it on both of them? Uh, I think it's more on Bond. Or yeah. like They're still quite close together, but she gets separated and it's more about Bond and Jaws fighting. Yeah. Yeah, so anyway, but Jaws kind of reveals himself after this and, and you get Bond and Jaws having a little bit of a fight. Um, right next to where all this scaffolding is and it's kind of it's really focused on the fact that they're smashing into these wooden beams and things and slowly 
weakening this whole structure. But as they're in the middle of that, Anya pulls out her gun from her little bag that she's got. Finally, I mean, she, you know, she didn't want to use the gun earlier. She was happy with her judo chop. Now she wants to use the gun. <laughs> and uh, she uses that to, to get them to stop and uh, obviously points it at Jaws and gets him to give her the microfilm that he has, which he just drops on the ground. Rookie mistake. She should have made him pick it up and give it to him properly, but nope. Uh, she has to bend down and get it and you know, she's still got his her gun on him, so she's scrambling around to find it with her other hand and has to look down for a brief second to grab it, uh, which Jaws uses as an opportunity to, like... I don't think... I think he just sort of kicks her a bit out of the way and she still gets the film and runs off with it, but just as a bit of a chance to get out of that situation and uh, carry on fighting Bond. And um, that's where the whole thing about this scaffolding comes into play because they... Uh, he, he goes to hit Bond and, and whacks into one of the beams and it all collapses on him and uh, it's just like covered in this gigantic mound of stone and rubble and everything and should really have been killed uh but as we've mentioned he seems to survive a lot jaws is a tough old guy but yeah bond takes that as an opportunity to escape and chase after anya he makes a quip though i forgot all the quips in this film terrible he makes another one he just says egyptian builders you know Which what Egyptian builders are like? It doesn't make any sense. Yeah, Egyptian builders. Yeah. I mean, surely Egyptian builders were pretty good. <laughs> I think they've made a few things of note, yeah. Yeah, they've stood the test of time, I'd say. <laughs> not that one scaffolding, though. It wasn't enough for Bond. No, clearly not. So I will say I really like this scene. Like, I really, really like it. Like, I really like it, Joe. <laughs> um, you really like it, do you? Yeah, so I just love the kind of atmosphere with it with, you know, Jaws you know, knows them and is kind of very slowly and calmly walking through this with them following. And it's nice to see them paired up, but I love that Bond is still in his tux. Yeah. Because yeah. normally with these films, they put Bond in the tux, but then he kind of ends up out of it when he goes to do the action scenes and things like that. But I love that we actually have a setting where he is still in that gear, chasing down the main henchman with his gun like in this kind of really cool setting with all these pillars. Like, I think it's just really cool. Like, I just love seeing it and seeing that on screen. And yeah, the fight's kind of a bit whatever, you know, it's just collapsing down. But I think that just them two exploring these pillars in their fancy gear with Jaws calmly walking through is enough for me to just really get sucked into it. I just thought it was so cool. It's such a, it's a great kind of striking visual, as you say, because Anya's the same, but like she's still got her dress on from the the Mujaba Club. So they both look very, as we said, fish out of water in this situation. Um, but it just looks looks great on screen. Yeah, it's something you'd only get in a Bond film. And that's what I'm here for. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, so Jaws is still alive. We see the hand come out of the rubble. And Anya gets to the van and tries to leave, but can't because Bond has the keys. So Bond very cockily walks up and is showing the keys. And he then gets in... And she's left the microfilm on the dashboard and they both look at each other and then just go to grab it and he just gets <laughs> it first. Yeah, amateur. Amateur mistake. Yeah, it's like, oh, I guess she's in the dress though, to be fair, right? She doesn't have pockets. That's true. She has a little bag though. Oh yeah, it should have been in the bag. Bond would never go for a woman's bag, would he? No, no, it's too much of a gentleman. Mm. So... <laughs> Yeah, so, I mean, there's a reason in terms of the story why Bond grabs it, but it's it's so silly done that they're both like, 
yeah, it's like something from Home Alone or a kid's film, right? Where it's like they both realize, like, oh, I gotta get it. <laughs> and then they both jump for it. But, uh, but yeah, yeah, so then they go to leave because Bond gives her the keys. And we see that Jaws is still there. And I think he lands on the roof. Does he jump yeah. on the... Yeah, he, he jumps on the van roof and starts ripping it off. Um, although, actually, I think Bond is all being very casual here. So I think he hasn't quite handed her the keys yet. He's just kind of going through and being like, here's, I think here's the right one. And she starts the van and Jaws just starts kicking the van. Uh, so he's trying to get in. Uh, and Bond is just being very well condescending and cocky throughout all of this, saying, like, let's let's try reverse. That's going backwards. Um, <laughs> as Jaws is just then, like, punches the van and rips it all off and... It is completely like destroying this van. Uh, so she like reverses. So Jaws grabs the back of the van and she reverses and smashes into it. Um, and then goes forwards and crashes and then goes backwards again, just trying to get Jaws off. And does she say shaken but not stirred? I th- oh, I think she does. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. Basically, Bond is like being cocky and condescending to her because she's not getting away. But then she does manage to smash Jaws into the wall. And then she's like shaken, not stirred. Uh, and Bond just rolls his eyes. <laughs> yeah, this is a fun little scene. Like, as you say, it's ultimate cocky Bond. Like, he's, he's clearly just trying to wind her up with this stuff. I will say, I kind of wish, I kind of wish Jaws, ha- Jaws hadn't come back for this bit, though um they just left him like with a hand coming out of the rubble to suggest he's still alive and i don't know had some other reason for the the van breaking down which they needed to do later on uh just because it's just it's very this bit is very like uh what's the word i'm trying to think of like slapstick you know where where jaws is like peeling off the side of the van and and she's reversing into him and pinning him against the wall and I, i just think it's there's a kind of drains a bit of what we just had in that the scene beforehand where there was a bit of mystery and Jaws like watching them and stuff like that and and now it's just like um and it actually later on in the scene does get silly as well but I just yeah I don't like how this this whole section ends personally uh yeah I can see that I think it's kind of quite strong on its own because having a man like rip this van apart it's pretty like crazy to see it's it's kind of a more exaggerated version of the oddball crushing the golf ball, right? Where he's supposed mm. to be really strong and they kind of demonstrate that. Well, that was quite kind of to the point and small. This is kind of a much bigger show. But I think just seeing the metal completely peel off, it's like, wow, okay. Um, maybe they should have gone less cocky bond because, yeah, as you say, that is making it a little bit more humor focused that maybe they didn't really need to do. Um, but I still liked it and... Yeah, they they go quite quickly with Jaws, don't they? Because, yeah, you're right. The last scene is more menacing, and especially with uh, the pyramids, he's more mysterious and menacing. But this is, he's already gone to his crazed manic phase where he's just desperately trying to get in this van and he just completely shows off his, like, superhuman strength to just rip this van apart, which I like. But, yeah, you are right. It does jump to it a lot quicker than you would expect like this would be something you'd expect at the end of the film right when he's just Mm. fully desperate and just has to get this done yeah 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 so then they eventually do get away and jaws is holding a stone and he drops it and i think you're supposed to be like he dropped it on his foot yeah (laughs) because he's just like (laughs) oh yeah 
I mean, yeah, you yeah, didn't this... need that. You definitely didn't need that. Bit. No, and and the bit is the, the bit that I was saying earlier. So you get you cut back to them in the van, and they're driving through the desert, and it's like where jaws has been peeling off the sides. It's just like flapping as it's going over all of the sand dunes and stuff. It's falling apart. This thing smoking and and they they have they add in this like really like the most overtly like comedic music track for the scene because it's meant to be a a funny visual of them going through the desert and this thing that's literally falling apart but i think for me it was just a bit too much on the nose and the thing that really sealed the deal for me not liking the scene is where it cuts back to them inside and they do this like little ding sound effect when bond smiles and i was just like oh that's just that's too much that's too much for me yeah, it's just way too cartoonish like yeah i don't know how to describe the music i just wrote it as like crap circus music because it's yeah. so like wacky and yeah it is like a cartoon and this never works there's like no film where this stuff works in terms of adding cartoon sound effects over the top but i think the visual of it kind of works alone like you yeah. just didn't need the music the visual of them driving this fan that's been ripped apart that's kind of funny and you can just enjoy it. you didn't need this so in your face and so obvious it's just yeah i agree terrible terrible choice uh but yeah so it does crash the fan does eventually break down so they just get out and start walking and eventually they we just quite quickly cut to bond and anya finding a boat and they ask to go to cairo and bond something that's quite interesting because i think bond speaks egyptian doesn't he in this film or whatever mm, yeah, language it is, I don't know. Yeah, a couple lines, yeah. Yeah, it's not a crazy amount, but it's not something he normally does. Normally it's kind of just implied and stuff, but we actually hear it, which is... Uh, it's it's cool that they did that, but... Yeah, so they he agrees with someone who has a boat on, I'm assuming, the Nile to go sailing, and we then cut to Bond on this boat where Anya is close by, and he's got this, like, what, a makeshift sort of camera? Like... Like, yeah. I, didn't, I didn't know it was a spy sort of gadget to look at the microfilm. Yeah, like it's some sort of magnifier film thing. Yeah, I just, I don't think I know how films work <laughs> <laughs> enough to really understand what was supposed to be happening. Yeah, it's just one of, one of Q's trusty gadgets, I suppose. Yeah, so he, he gets it out and takes a look at the microfilm and we get a few shots of the plans and we also get some really nice kind of shots of the river as well like it's egypt right it's cairo so yeah let's get some really nice shots of the nile it's another smart way of them adding this stuff in and showing off the parts of egypt that everyone knows and we get another version of nobody does it better already um they kind of use it as like the romantic sort of theme so this is kind of going into a somewhat romantic scene and uh, i don't like it really um and that kind of goes for this scene, to be honest. Uh, uh, Bond and Anya are lying on the boat next to each other. And Bond is like, she's cold. So Bond then's like, oh, let's share bodily, bodily warmth. And then they oh, like yeah. kiss. And I mean, it makes sense, this scene. I think it's just not very enjoyable to sit through. <laughs> Um, yeah, yeah. Because they start talking about like Siberian training or something. I forgot about that bit. Yeah, she's all like, oh, my Siberian survival course, and she's all acting all innocent and stuff. And I assumed it was some sort of an act because it didn't really make sense, but that didn't make it any better to sift through. And eventually she goes to smoke 
Or Bond allows her to have a cigarette, and when she lights it, it's knockout gas. What? Yeah, it gets a little gassy. And she knocks Bond out, and Roger Moore does a, a nice face. Like, oh, 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 oh. <laughs> I want to say there's another cheesy sound effect for that bit as well. Oh, there probably is, but... Yeah. Uh, but yeah, so it, this scene's fine, I guess, because the whole idea is that she's playing up... You know, Bond is Bond, sees a pretty lady, sees a pretty lady who's kind of in... Like, he's going to do his moves, and if she kind of responds to it, he's going to go in for a kiss and assume that they're going to sleep together. So I like the idea of Anya kind of manipulating Bond in that way to knock him out. But I think the fact that it's on this really romantic setting and they play Nobody Does It Better at the same time just makes it feel like they are actually trying to portray this as a romantic scene. And if you actually do take it as that, it's just a bit painful to sit through. Like, I don't want to see this. Like, I don't want to see them together. Like, eventually they do get together. Spoilers, I'm afraid, but... The fact that this is kind of portrayed in this way, I, I just didn't like it. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing, isn't it? Like, it's, it's just a bit too early. As you say, they do start working together later on, and it makes more sense then when they, they become closer. But at this point, they are still, you know, rival agents. So, I don't know. I like it on paper. You know, I like it that the idea that this woman who's an agent would know to manipulate Bond in this way and then does... I just yeah. don't want to actually see what... They're just portraying it as an actual romantic scene between Bond and the Bond girl, which those scenes have been quite bad in the last few films. So I just didn't really want to see that. I don't really have any suggestions in terms of how to do this instead. It's just... It's a nice idea, and on paper I like it. I just don't like watching it. Hmm. And with that, you have reached the end of part one of episode 10 of the Bond Revisited podcast. Join myself and Tom next time where Bond heads to Italy to take a dive in the Lotus Esprit, leading him to Stromberg's base, all heading to the final explosive battle within the tanker. Thank you very much for listening, and we'll see you for part two.